0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Amen. Hey as you're being seated, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, we do have our sermon notes available through our Google Drive folder. So, I encourage you to access those if you would like to follow along in that capacity. I shared with you earlier that we're going to stay within verses 1 through 6 today. But I do want us to read through the entire chapter just to set the context. As it does help clarify some of the things that we'll be talking about in verses 1 through 6. To know what else happens in this chapter. So let's look at Revelation chapter 12. And let's start reading in verse 1. So "In a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with 7 heads and 10 horns and on his heads 7 diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when She bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard uh, a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. We've been talking uh, through Revelation chapter 11. Um, so backing up a little bit, we had wrapped up the trumpet discussion. We had seen specifically the two witnesses that are mentioned at the beginning of Revelation chapter 11. Um, we had talked about the the two witnesses being really representative of the church and our responsibility to proclaim a message of repentance Um, to accept delayed vindication, to realize that his glory is more important than our immediate safety. And so we had talked about specifically, we trust in God whose presence protects us spiritually, but we also work for a God whose purposes protect us physically up to a certain point. Basically saying that, man, we have a, a, a responsibility to proclaim a message that ultimately may lead to our death. People may hate the message that we're sharing but that we can trust that God protects us spiritually all the time, he protects us physically as long as we still fit within his purposes for gospel evangelization. And then once that's done, it may lead to our death, right? And so we talked about just our responsibility to identify people in our life that we're willing to share the gospel with at all costs, that we're not going to stop until they come to faith in Christ, right? Um, And Chris shared an example with me Last week, um, him praying for his brother-in-law, I think he shared with me he's been praying for his brother-in-law for 12 years, Um, wrote a letter to his brother-in-law, I want to say like four or five years ago, and basically just laid out the gospel message, told his brother-in-law that he wanted to do it so that he could reference back to it whenever he wanted to. And for whatever reason, his brother-in-law started reading that letter once once a year and would tell Chris, hey, I read the letter again. Um, and it was convicting to Chris, he was even sharing last week, he said what was convicting is that my brother-in-law said, in the midst of reading it year after year, why did you wait so long to write this? Like, if this stuff's really that important to you, why did you wait so long to really communicate that to me? And then another thing he said was, have you written this letter to everybody else in your life that's not a believer? Like, if you really believe this, if you really think this is true, have you written this to your Clemson friends? Have you written this to, to these people? Do you, do you carry this weight to these other people as well. And so Chris said it was very convicting in, in working through with his brother-in-law. But um, this past year, Chris said that his brother-in-law has come to faith in Christ and now professes Christ as his Savior after 12 years of praying and just laboring for that. Um, another example, um, which was really cool, because even Ben, I think Ben was in that conversation he shared, I mean, that's, that's always hard for, for uh, someone who, who's been laboring to pray for somebody and wondering, like, is this ever gonna happen? Um, yesterday at McDonald's, I meet a bunch of weird weird people at McDonald's. Like I have a lot of weird conversations. There's a lot of people that frequent it as much as I do on Saturdays and Sundays. So I see a lot of the same people. Um, there's a lot of people that, that don't remember things that we've talked about. And so I've got, I'm, I'm known by multiple names there because they don't remember my name. And so I just I just go with it. So there's one guy that thinks my name's Chris every time he talks to me. So the guy just calls me preacher man. Um, so other guy yesterday came in and believes that I'm his his buddy, Chuck from work and carried on a full conversation with me yesterday. And I didn't realize, I just thought he was being nice. Like, I just thought we were talking about hunting and stuff. And in the middle of it, he started referencing me as Chuck and then proceeded to ask me if I had to work tonight because apparently we work at the same place. And I was too embarrassed to let him know that I wasn't Chuck. And so we just kind of went, he came back multiple times and finished the conversation. Really weird. There's this other guy, though, like he gets it. Like he's a believer. He's, he's an older gentleman. He's a part of a, of, a, of a house church in Brooks. Anytime he's in there, he talks to me about uh, what he's learning, um, things that are going on in his life. He's always talking to me about his wife and some of the health challenges they faced. And so he came in yesterday, and so he stopped to talk to me, and he was telling me, he said, um, he said I got something encouraging for you. He said, I've, I've had a coworker for the past 20 years. He said, I've been praying for this guy constantly for him to be saved. Said he said was, he, was, he was always very against the things that I said. He said he's a, he's a Jew, but not a Messianic Jew, so he didn't believe in Jesus. He said, I've given verses to him over and over and over, just laboring for this guy to be saved. He said, this week, he said, he said I knew something was different at work with this guy. And he said, he came up to me and he said, he said, brother, I want you to know somebody introduced me to the Messiah. And he said, the verse they used was a verse that you've been using with me for years He said, but it just just really hit me finally. He said, and I believe all the things that you've been sharing with me for the past 20 years. Man, that was just super encouraging because we talked about that in reference to these two witnesses, right? Like laboring for the gospel, identifying somebody that like, you're just not gonna give up on. You're just not gonna stop praying for. You're not gonna stop sharing the gospel with until they become a believer. These two witnesses are representative of the church as a whole, right? We saw the trumpets being blown at the end, that seventh trumpet, kind of culminates with with why we celebrate Jesus. We had talked about in Revelation four, we celebrate God who created all things. Revelation five, we celebrate the lamb who was, sla- who was slaughtered and redeems the nations. But here in Revelation 11, we celebrate the almighty who ends this world with his triumphant reign. But I told you, like we see so often in Revelation, it, it, it's cyclical, right? Like we get to the end and then we just kind of back up again and we, and we move to the end again and then we back up again. And that's what happens here in Revelation chapter 12 but we back up even further than we've been backing up probably in previous parts of Revelation because here in Revelation chapter 12, we are backing up to the first coming of Jesus, right? It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head, a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and on his head, seven diadems. His tail sweeps away the third of the stars, um, cast them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child. Which male child? The one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child's caught up to God into his throne, and the woman flees into the wilderness for a set period of time. All commentators believe that this is referencing Christ's first coming that this is, this is in reference to Jesus's first visit to this earth as the God-man, that the season that we now enter into over the next couple of weeks as we celebrate the Christmas season. Revelation 12 is describing this not in the ways that we're typically used to it being described, right? Typically when we read the, the nativity account, right, we go to the gospels and we read about baby Jesus and we read about the shepherds and the wise men and we may introduce the, the threat of Herod and his desire to kill Jesus and the baby boys. But for the most part, it's a very calm scene. It's a very rejoiceful scene. It's a very worshipful scene. And, and what's pictured here in Revelation chapter 12 is, is, a, is, a, is a, a warlike scene, right that this war that's been going on all through history really culminates here with the birth of jesus with the great dragon who we learn later in chapter 12 is satan ready to devour ready to devour the messiah to prevent his own defeat So Revelation 12, 1-6, looking at this Christmas story from a different perspective, a supernatural perspective, kind of a behind-the-scenes. So you have the nativity scene happening, but if we could see into the supernatural realm, far more going on than what's simply revealed in that normal nativity scene. Our summary sentence for this morning. Christmas encourages Christians because it inaugurated the defeat of the great dragon guaranteeing that the cosmic war that has raged since the beginning will end with Christ victorious at the end. Christmas ought to encourage us as Christians because it inaugurated the defeat of the great dragon, guaranteeing that the cosmic war that has raged since the beginning will end with Christ victorious at the end. That great defeat really begins with that first Christmas, the birth of the one who has been longed for by God's people Really, since Adam and Eve in the garden. For our kids, the first Christmas began the final defeat of Satan. As you're writing, the purpose of chapter 12's vision is really to answer the question: why are we persecuted as the church? We've been talking about persecution throughout chapter or throughout the book of Revelation. We know that persecution is promised. John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus assures us that in his own words. He says, um, remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. He tells us that we should expect it, but the question is why? Why should we expect it? Why was Jesus uh, fought against? Why was Jesus rejected? Why did mankind seek to kill Jesus? Why does mankind now seek to kill Christians throughout this world? That's what Revelation chapter 12 answers. It answers the great question, why persecution? We know persecution exists. We know persecution is promised. We've seen reasons to persevere through persecution throughout Revelation. But now John pauses and is able to write to us to reflect upon that question, why? Why do we have to endure persecution? Why does persecution come? There's a great cosmic war that's been going on around us since the beginning, we know from even Ephesians chapter six that we're to be prepared for that cosmic war that's at war you know, around us constantly. That, that as we go about our lives, as we wake up each morning, as we take care of our kids, as we go to work, as we finish school, things that we do, there's, there's bigger things that play around us than just those mundane things of the day. That the things that we choose to do are a part of a great cosmic war that wait, that rages around us. And we see some important characters in that war here in Revelation chapter 12. So as a, as a means of introduction, I want to introduce you to the three characters that are so important to verses one through six. First of all, the woman. The woman, the one who delivers the Messiah to the world. There's some debate as to, to who this actually is. Um, Catholic Church is heavy upon presenting this as the Virgin Mary. Um, she certainly grouped into this. Um, but I think as you look at the woman and as the woman's offspring is unpacked throughout this chapter, it has to be bigger than one individual. Um because of the fact that the offspring are being attacked by Satan and it and it being viewed more as God's people as a whole and not just Mary's other kids. Right? So so I, I think the woman is best understood in this chapter to, to certainly represent the Virgin Mary, to certainly represent Eve from the Garden of Eden, uh, but to really ultimately to represent all of God's people. And I would, I would not label it the church simply because when we say the church, we think in terms of New Testament body of believers, right? And it's not the nation of Israel because oftentimes when we say the nation of Israel, we think of those that were followers and rejectors of Yahweh, right? So just because they were Jewish, we call them the nation of Israel. This is God's people from from the beginning to the end. This is all of God's people. Those that made up real Israel, those that make up the real church today, it's the real people of God that are really encompassed (coughs) in this picture of the woman. She represents the messianic community of God's people. What's interesting is that the language parallels Genesis chapter 37. So you'll remember back when we were studying through the book of Genesis, we came to the story of Joseph we talked about the dreams that Joseph had. In one particular, he says in verse 9 of Genesis 37, Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Right? We have those same elements mentioned here. Right? In, in, in chapter 37, this was talking about God's people, uh, particularly at that time. Uh, Joseph, his brothers, his mom, his dad, represented through the sun, the moon, and the stars. And so I think there's some parallel there in Revelation that these images are being used to draw our attention to the fact that this is God's people. This is how God's talked about his people before. This is how God has described his people before, all right? Um, Throughout the Old Testament as well, remember I've, I've tried to tell you all through Revelation that Revelation is not unique in that It's not using language that's not also used throughout other parts of scripture. At various places in the Old Testament, Israel, the nation of Israel, is talked about like a pregnant woman, one who who anticipates delivering hope to the nations. So there's pregnant type language used throughout the Old Testament. This idea of of longing to, to deliver, to give birth to something that was promised. It's particularly in Isaiah chapter 26 is one that I'll read to you. Isaiah chapter 26, we'll start reading in verse 17. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs, when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we rise, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Almost a Uh, a discouragement about the fact that promises were made to us as Israel and we've, we've yet to see those promises deliver. We've yet to play a part in delivering the hope that we're supposed to deliver. "'Your dead shall live, your body shall rise. "'You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, "'for your dew is a dew of light, "'and the earth will give birth to the dead.'" Come, my people, into your chambers and shut your doors behind you. Hide yourselves for a little while until the fury has passed by. For behold, the Lord is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity, and the earth will disclose the blood shed on it and will no more cover its slain. So there's reassurance that no, Christ is coming, right? Christ is coming. Why? chapter 27, verse one. In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. This is, this is really similar to what's happening in Revelation, right? This, this, this idea that, that God's people long for the Messiah to come. The reassurance given to Israel, the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, all these things that you've hoped for will happen. And it will culminate in the defeat of the great dragon, the great serpent. He will be defeated by the one who is to come. Language in Revelation is used throughout Scripture. This expectation of delivering hope. The woman's offspring includes all of God's people. I told you I think she's more than just an individual, and that's because of what we see in the remaining portion of chapter 12. If you skip down to verse 11... is talking about her offspring here they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death you continue to read through portions of that scripture then the dragon became furious with the woman and went out to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus this isn't just Jesus's brothers and sisters from Mary right like these are all of God's people that Satan wages war against okay so that gives us an idea of who the woman is the woman in a a picturesque form, represents all of God's people, okay? Number two, the child. The child, obviously, uh, very strongly, uh, we see as Jesus here in this passage. Jesus, the one who comes to rule and reign forever. He's the longed-for Messiah, the prophesied one of Psalm chapter two. We referenced this chapter um, a couple of weeks ago. We'll reference it again, uh, just so you can see the correlation that this is language that John uses to show fulfillment of previous promises. It says, Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven's laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Right? There was this expectation of the one who would come who would rule all the nations. Those who were not submitted to him, he would defeat them. That language has already been used in Revelation. Revelation chapter 2. Verse 26 through 28, this ties that promise not only to Jesus, but to us being able to participate in it if we persevere. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And to think that we get aligned with that type of authority, that we get to rule alongside Jesus as his people, That's the assurance given to us in Revelation chapter 2. We see this even further if we jump ahead to Revelation chapter 19, a passage that's largely considered to be the return of Christ, that second coming by most people. Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. This is Jesus, the child, the one that we celebrate Christmas around. And what we find in Revelation chapter 12, not that his life and death and resurrection are emphasized but more so his birth and his ascension right if we jump back to revelation chapter 12 there's nothing mentioned here about the child living and and growing up and, and dying and coming back to life but we are simply told that he is born and that when he is born he's caught up to god and to his throne the incarnation and the ascension are key descriptions of this individual The ascension is where we believe Jesus to be now, the the result of the ascension, him going back to the Father. In John chapter 13, verse three, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. Right? The incarnation that the God man became man, that the, God, that the Son of God became man, came to us and returned to God, verifying that God accepted all that he had done. In John chapter 16, verse 28, I just want to hear, hit a couple more of these uh, passages that reference the ascension. I came from the Father, Jesus said, and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. Acts chapter 2, verse 33 being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Right, here in, chapter, in, in Acts chapter two, the, the works that are happening within the church being attributed to Jesus who sits next to the Father. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter three, 1 Timothy chapter three, verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to have behaved in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed amongst the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Last one we'll look at is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The child is most certainly Jesus, the one who came and the one who has ascended back to his father. Number three, the dragon, the one who attacks the purposes of God. This is the one who attacks the purposes of God. And here's the thing, why why, why call him a dragon here? Because I don't think he, he literally takes on the, the embodiment of a dragon. Uh, I think he could, but I don't, I don't think that, that Satan is necessarily roaming this earth as a dragon. In fact, we're told that he's ro- ro- uh, roaming it more like a lion, right? Why Why the dragon? For whatever reason, in, in, in Old Testament literature especially, dragons and, and monsters are used to describe the adversaries of God's people. Those who are opposed to God's plans are oftentimes described as dragons or as monsters. And think about it, we use those as pictures in our fairy tales of villains, those who oppose light, those who oppose truth, those who oppose goodness, oftentimes embody the the picture of a serpent, the picture of a monster, the picture of a dragon. In Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 34, again, just to to help you see that the language of Revelation is simply how God has always communicated. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me like a monster. (laughs) He has filled his stomach with my delicacies. He has rinsed me out. This is talking about when Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon invaded and uh, ripped the Jewish people away from their homes. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 29, verse three. So that was an example of Nebuchadnezzar being viewed that way. In Ezekiel 29, verse three. Behold, I am against you, God said, Behold I am against you Pharaoh king of Egypt the great dragon that lies in the midst of his streams that says my Nile is my own I made it for myself comparing Pharaoh to a dragon all right so God uses this type of language to describe those who are against his purposes I told you earlier this is the first mention of the dragon in Revelation he's identified by name in verse 9 so we don't have to wonder who this dragon is it is Satan um, what we find then is, again, that question to Revelation 12, why the persecution? I mean, Satan is behind the persecution that we endure. He has been attacking the offspring of the woman for a long time. Um, what we also find here in Revelation is most likely the origin of, of uh, demons and where they come from. And this is the only time that we're really told that demons were were in heaven and were then cast out a third of them with satan like this is where we really base that off of now we have other passages that talk about fallen angels and and this is where angels are right now or these demons and this is what they do but this is the primary passage that we look to to understand <coughs> that a third of the angels were cast out we see the the sweeping of the heavens and the third of the stars which we then attribute to being the fallen angels because of how the rest of chapter 12 unpacks itself we'll look at that more as we get into chapter 12 in the coming weeks all right, so, so those are the characters here in Revelation 12. What does that mean? Why, why, why is this important? Why, why did John share this information with us? I want to give you three points this morning for you to remember as to why chapter 12, verses 1 through 6 is important. First of all, number one, trust God to keep his word. We trust God to keep his word specifically because of what we see here in verses 1 through 6. <coughs> and this is for our kids as well. Trust God to keep his word. Number one, God had promised to send the Messiah to defeat the dragon, right? We go back to Genesis chapter 3, what's known as the Proto-Evangelium, the first mention of the gospel as, as God is issuing uh, discipline to Adam and Eve and Satan Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. Man, that started it. When, when Satan deceived Adam and Eve in the garden, that started the cosmic war that we're talking about. It, it unleashed Satan. When these words were spoken, it unleashed Satan to try to stop that from happening. I don't want there to be enmity between me and her offspring, I want her offspring. I don't want there to be a division. Remember, we talked about the fact that what Jesus was communicating, what God was communicating there is, you're not gonna get all the offspring. You're not gonna get Adam and Eve and their children the way that you think you are. I'm going to rescue them back to me. So there's gonna be enmity, there's gonna be division between your offspring and her offspring, meaning they're gonna be my offspring. I'm bringing them back to me. Right? So this war starts to unfold. And, and I heard some of you talking in your groups of how that unfolded, that um, immediately there's hope that, that uh, Abel is the one who would come to save them and, and Cain is the one that, that kills him, right? Kind of squashes out that hope immediately of Abel being the Messiah. Um, we'll, we'll talk some more here in just a second about other ways that that has unfolded. But the battle between the woman and the dragon began in Eden. Right, And so we see this here in Revelation chapter 12. The woman representing God's people and the dragon looking to devour that ultimate offspring, the Messiah. God promised to send the Messiah to defeat the dragon. And God, number two, protected his people repeatedly to preserve a line for the Messiah. God protected his people repeatedly to preserve a line for the Messiah. And man, Satan has been attacking God's people, killing God's people for a long time. Hebrews chapter 11 is that chapter that talks about all these famous people in the Old Testament and the ways they demonstrated their faith. But then it concludes, the author says, I don't have time to tell you about these other people who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women who received back their dead by resurrection, these are all like things that they were involved in, but then some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. I mean, if you're like me, sometimes you look back in the Old Testament and you think you could name every believer in the Old Testament just because we have the stories of so many of them. But I mean, there's so many stories that were never told in God's word, right? Like they didn't have time to write them down. All these people that did these things that we don't even know the details of who they were and, and how that actually played out. All under the attack of Satan as Satan sought to kill God's people to prevent the Messiah from coming. He's been doing it since the the, 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 the verdict was given to him uh, before God there in Genesis chapter three. God has always protected his people to make sure the Messiah could come. We said, first of all, Satan sought to kill Abel with Cain, right? And this was motivated by Satan. First John chapter three, verse 12. Now I'm just gonna hit a couple of the, of the highlights of how God has continued to keep the Messiah um, possible, even though Satan was trying to stop it. Verse 12 of 1 John 3, we should not be like Cain who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous, right? Cain was a part of Satan's offspring and Satan used Cain to kill Abel to try to squash the hope of the Messiah. But what did God do? God said, Seth's coming, right? Like you're gonna give birth to another son um, and I'm gonna preserve the line through Seth. But Satan sought to kill the descendants of Seth, how? Because in Genesis chapter six, Right? There's that perversion with the, with the angel demons, potentially, where they're, they're, they're coming together with the, <coughs> with the daughters of Seth, and they're perverting the line, and, and God looks around and basically says, Man, this is so evil, I have to extinguish it. Like, I, have to, I have to just start over. It's gotten so out of hand with the evil and the sin. Satan's sitting back there thinking, there's no way the Messiah can come through this. Right? God looks and says, I've got Noah. Like Noah finds favor in my eyes. I'll start over with Noah. He wipes all of Satan's wrecking out of the way, and starts over with Noah. Right then, Satan tries to kill the Hebrew boys in Exodus chapter one. Right, so we we saw the the nation of Israel go down to Egypt when we um, finished our discussion in Genesis. Remember, we said Joseph and his family moved there. But again, they're nothing more than just a really large family at that point. They're, they're hardly a nation, hardly a threat. But then a new king arises, verse 8 of Exodus 1, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they put taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other, Pua, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them in their birthstool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it's a daughter... She shall live. Man, this is satanic at its origins, right here. Let's stop the nation of Israel. The Messiah has to come through this. A male child has to come through this. Let's just kill all the males, right? God preserves through Moses. Satan sought to kill all the royal heirs of Judah. 2 Kings chapter 11. I mean, this is this is fairy tale type story uh, at its best, right here, but it's real. This is the type of stuff you make movies off of, right here. 2 Kings chapter 11. Now when Athelia, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshabah, the daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from the king's sons who were being put to death. She put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Man, extinguish the royal line. There is no Messiah. And that's exactly what she sought out to do, except for this one who preserves the one last person who's a part of the royal line, the one male child where the Messiah would come from, preserved by God's provision. We know something similar happens when Satan tries to kill all the Jews in the book of Esther, right? When Haman gets angry at Mordecai and tries to plan this day where you can just kill people, You can just kill all the Jewish people and they can't really do anything back to you. There's no punishment for you doing this. Let's just get rid of them. God preserves them. God spares them. Esther, for such a time as this, rescues her people, right? And then we obviously know in Matthew chapter two, when when the wise men don't come back and tell Herod where Jesus is, he sets out to just kill every male boy that's two years old and younger. Let's stop the Messiah. God continues to protect he keeps his word, he makes sure the Messiah comes, right? The implication for us here, God's faithfulness to keep his word throughout history empowers us to believe that he will continue to do so into the future. I mean that when I'm going through something tough as a a believer and I'm questioning whether God's going to actually do good or not like he's promised, Man, I can look back into all of these accounts and say, man, God promised to send Jesus and Satan, as the dragon, did everything possible to stop it and Jesus worked through every situation or God worked through every situation to bring Jesus to this earth through the nation of Israel as a descendant of Abraham, just as he had promised. And you say, why was it so important for it to be done through Abraham and through David and through the, the nation of Israel? And like, why was that so important? So that there's no question in our mind if he's the one or not. There's no question in our mind, right? Like all the preserving of the tribes and the genealogies, why, why, why is that so important in the Old Testament? Because all these prophecies, all these prophecies are meant to point us to the only one who could have fulfilled all of them. And what happens as soon as Jesus comes? We don't need the genealogies anymore. We don't need the tribes anymore. You meet a Jew today, he can't tell you what tribe he's from confidently because there's, there's no historical records anymore. When Jerusalem fell in AD 70, all of that fell with it. You can't, you can't prove, if somebody wanted to show up now and say, I meet all of the Old Testament criteria to be the son of God, you would say, well, you can't prove that. Jesus could. All that stuff was still in play when Jesus came. It's not now. Well, why does God continue to preserve the nation of Israel? Because I think the nation of Israel is still important. It still has a place in God's plans, but the tribes don't really. The genealogies don't matter. So God doesn't need to preserve that part, but he does still continue to preserve the nation of Israel because I do believe that Romans nine, ten, and 11 portray the idea that God's not done with the nationality Jewish person right? But he doesn't need the genealogy anymore. He doesn't need the tribes anymore. He preserved all that in the Old Testament to show us that the, the woman who birthed this child, it's Jesus who fulfills all of those prophecies. So God's faithfulness to do all this, to preserve all this, to make sure that Jesus shows up at the right time, I mean, that gives me confidence when, when I'm going through something tough as an individual believer in my work week to say, I mean, God's going to do something good here because man he's always been faithful to keep his word. When when things got tough and the dragon was roaring and the dragon was ready to devour, man Jesus kept Jesus your God just keep kept coming through. He keeps his his word. He's he's faithful. He's worth trusting. All right? So we trust God to keep his word. Number 2, we trust God to exalt his son. We trust God to exalt his son. Number one, the woman gave birth despite the dragon's efforts. That's what really rings true here in this passage, right? I mean, think about this scene. You've got this dragon here with seven heads and ten horns, and his heads have seven diadems or crowns on him, and his tail sweeps down a third of the stars. So if we're talking about angels that he influenced, he's certainly deceptive. He's certainly got power. And he's standing before the woman who's about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. If you play out this scene in your mind, and you're the, you're, the, you're the dad, and you're waiting for the child to be born, and there is a dragon at the foot of your wife waiting to devour the son. I mean, you, you're, you're, you have no power here. Right? Like you're, you're completely powerless to protect this child because you're trying to take care of your wife. You're trying to take care, make sure the birth is okay, and this giant dragon is ready to eat the baby when it comes out. I mean, this is a hopeless situation. This is a hopeless situation. There's no way the child survives this. There's no way the child can overcome this great powerful dragon that's ready to eat it as soon as it comes into this earth, into this planet. it It can't happen, right? But immediately the picture is she gives birth, one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron, but her child's caught up to God and to his throne. Now, does it happen immediately? No, right? Jesus is born in that manger. Jesus escapes, Herod they flee to Egypt. Jesus grows up. He, he escapes the mobs who want to kill him once he starts teaching. It's only at the right precise time that God gives him over to the Pharisees, gives him over to Rome, and they crucify him. And he dies. And he comes back to life. And he spends enough time on this earth to prove his resurrection to over 500 people. And then he's ascended into heaven. Right? The woman gives birth to the, to the, to the son, to the, to the man, to the God-man, despite all the dragon's efforts. Every attempt to stop the coming one, Satan fails. Number two, the child was victorious through his life, death, and resurrection and ascension. So even though those things aren't shared here, it's implied. Because the only way he can go back to his father is if he's been successful. Right, we see this pictured in Philippians 2. so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Colossians 2:15 We talked about this inaugurating the death and the defeat of the dragon Colossians 2:15 He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How did he do that? You back up, verse thirteen, fourteen. you were dead in your trespasses and circumstances in your flesh. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All right, so we said all of God's protection to get the Messiah here, shows us his faithfulness. He keeps his promises. So what does that mean for me today? I can trust God with his word because he's shown himself to be faithful. Here, we're saying that God has worked very hard to exalt his son, Jesus. Like, Jesus is the most important thing to God the Father. Right, like he's done everything for Jesus. He's guarded and protected everything to make sure that Jesus came in the fullness of time at the right time. He preserves him through his life, doesn't let him die until it's appropriate, Then he exalts him, gives him the name that's above every name so that every tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord, right? (coughs) To me, the implication is, man, God's commitment to his son reminds us that our own commitment to Christ is worth whatever troubles may come by following him. Like when we talk about what to invest our life in, what do we commit our life to? What are we here for? What are we doing? Man, if I look to see what God the Father is all about, God the Father is all about Jesus. He has invested everything in Jesus. To me, that that makes the most sense to invest my life into then. Man, if it's all about Jesus and everything in history is moving towards the exaltation of Jesus, it just makes sense that I need to get on board with that. Like I need to follow Jesus and whatever it may cost me here in this life pales in comparison to what is coming Because I know God the Father is all about the exaltation of Jesus. Why would I not want to be a part of that? Right, so so trust God to exalt his son. And if you really believe that's what's coming, man, why would you not be following him wholeheartedly? If that's where history ends, with the exaltation of Jesus, with him ruling and reigning forever over all nations, man, that's what we invest our life in. Trust God to exalt his son. Number three, trust God to protect his people. And we'll try to impact this more as we get into Revelation, but I wanted to close with what happens after verse five. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. A couple of points that I want to make here. There's a lot of questions that still surround what, what is this talking about, but some things I think that are clear. Number one, while Satan is allowed to make war against Christians, his time is limited. His time is limited, all right? So we've already read through chapter 12. We know, again, chapter 12 is a big cycle, I think. I think we're gonna see everything we talked about today again in the coming weeks, but we're just gonna unpack it more. But what we find is that the woman goes into the wilderness and she's attacked. The, the people of God are attacked, for a set period of time. It's the same period of time that we've been talking about. Whether it's called 42 months, whether it's called 1260 days, whether it's called time, time again, time and a half, like it's all the same amount of time. Okay? Um it's a limited amount of time that Satan's allowed to make war. Which is a reminder to us, the devil can only persecute during divinely prescribed time periods. God gets to tell Satan when he's allowed to persecute his people. Number two, while Satan is allowed to pursue Christians, it's on God's territory. Think about this. Like, yes, persecution's happening, but what's happening alongside of it? Nourishment, right? She goes into the wilderness where she can be nourished for 1,260 days. It's also the same time period she's going to be persecuted, So while the dragon is persecuting, God the Father is nourishing God's people in the midst of that persecution. It's on God's territory. Think about the wilderness. When you think about the wilderness, you think about, you may think about like like a bad area, like a desolate area, an area that's lacking. And it is all those things. But think about how God has used the wilderness in the lives of his people. Because it's desolate, because it has nothing, because it's lacking everything, man, you're completely and fully relying upon God when you're there. Think about people that have been in the wilderness that have been provided for by God. Remember we read about Hagar when she fled because of uh, Sarah's mistreatment and she flees into the wilderness and and her and her son are about to die because they don't have any food, don't have any water. What does God do? provides for them, right? Remember Elijah. He has his great victory on Mount Carmel and then he panics because he thinks Jezebel is going to kill him. He flees into the wilderness. There's nothing there. God shows up and God provides for him. Like God brings water to him, brings food to him. This is God's territory. The wilderness is God's territory because the only one that can take care of you and provide for you there is God. It's a temporary place, but it's a place of provision. Exodus chapter 16 the whole nation of Israel has to wander there and God takes care of them to the point that in Exodus sixteen thirty two, Moses said, this is what the Lord God has commanded. Let an omar of it be kept. This is of manna, so uh, an omar of manna. Keep it throughout your generations so that you may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Hang on to this so you never forget that when you were in the wilderness, you were nourished and taken care of by me. Deuteronomy chapter two, verse seven. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hands. He knows you are going through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you and you have lacked nothing you can't spend 40 years in the wilderness and say I've not lacked something unless God's doing something there. Like their shoes didn't wear out, right? Like they walked around for years and their shoes didn't wear out. Like God provided for them. And that's the picture here we have. Yes, there's persecution. Yes, the dragon is very angry that Jesus escaped this earth and he wasn't able to stop him. So chapter 12 says he now turns his attention to the offspring that are still here, right? Jesus is in heaven, Satan can't touch him, can't tempt him anymore like he did in the wilderness where again, God provided to his own son in the wilderness. Can't do anything to Jesus. So now he turns his attention to to the other offspring, to us. God says, you're gonna go to the wilderness and I'm gonna nourish you in the midst of your persecution. I'm gonna take care of you. God always owns the wilderness basically for his purposes. It's also a place of training. We're told that Paul went there and spent time in the wilderness to learn so that he could then be used the way that God used him as a great church planner. God owns the wilderness. God provides in the wilderness. And that's exactly where I would want to be persecuted on God's territory. That's the assurance that's given to us as believers. All right, Jesus has won the victory. So the implication for us, and here's the last verse that I want to read to us. Because it's my prayer for you as an elder to his people. We must come to know that God's people are protected from Satan because of Christ's decisive victory through death and resurrection. We have to know that. We have to believe that. We have to let that influence the way we live every single day. That was Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. In chapter 1 of Ephesians, verse 15, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And what does he remember? What does he pray for specifically? Verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. All right, so he's saying, I'm praying something specific. I'm praying that your, your, your brains are open, your eyes are open, you can comprehend this really important truth. I'm praying that you get this. What does he want him to get? That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and serpent and dragon. Like, insert insert anything that makes you think of Satan into that passage, because Jesus has been exalted far above all of it, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul says, I want you to know that, right? I want your your minds to be shaped by the fact that Jesus has won a decisive victory and he is worth going all in for. He offers this great protection to us we can trust him with everything that we have from an application standpoint as we celebrate this Christmas season, as we, as we gather each, each week in December, as we celebrate our Christmas party, as you go to Christmas parties, as you potentially work through your own Advent studies, let the faithfulness of God to send Jesus and all that that means, all the labor that God did to make sure that the line was preserved so that Jesus could come, let the faithfulness of God to send Jesus the commitment of God to Jesus. I mean, God the Father is all about exalting Jesus. Let his commitment to Jesus and the protection offered because of Jesus, let all those things together lead you to trust God more during this Christmas season. Trust God more at the end of this month because you've been been worshiping Jesus And when you worship Jesus and you think about Jesus and you picture Christmas, picture that nativity scene. But picture the dragon there as well. Picture the hopeless situation of a great dragon standing outside that manger scene. And the shepherds aren't there and the wise men aren't there yet. And that that, that little boy comes into this earth and he is immediately protected. Everything that Satan wants to do is to kill him. And Satan is not permitted to do so. Let that cause you to trust Jesus more during this Christmas season. Family worship questions. Man, if your kids aren't in here, it's worth talking about the Christmas uh, story with the dragon. <laughs> I came home from studying this morning. AJ was like telling me about some dragon that he has. And I was like, hey, that's cool. I said, we're actually talking about a dragon at church today. And he, like, he, he just, he's like, whoa. He said, you're talking about a dragon at church today? He said, what story is that in? And I said, I'm gonna tell you tonight. Before you go to bed, I'm gonna tell you tonight. Um, Pick out a story where Satan tried to ruin God's plans for the Messiah and reflect upon God's faithfulness to keep his promise to send the Messiah by protecting his people. Man, you could go and, and read the story of Esther to your kids. You could read about Athalia and her desire to kill all the offspring. Read any of those stories and just reflect about God's faithfulness to keep the hope the promise of the Messiah. Number two, read through Ephesians 6 in the armor of God and discuss how each piece helps us against Satan. Satan's here. Satan Satan is roaring like a, like a lion, wanting to devour us, wanting to attack us. But remember, it's in the wilderness. It's on God's ground. It's on God's territory where we are protected. Let's pray and then we'll sing one more song to close today. God, we thank you so much for the chance to celebrate the coming of Jesus. We look so forward to the second coming of Jesus, God, but we don't ever want to forget how decisive the first coming was. Yes, we know when Jesus comes back, all these things get put to an end and all these things are gone and done with. But God, help us to remember the first coming. You inaugurated that defeat. Satan has been defamed. You have offered ultimate protection because of what was accomplished on the cross. We thank you so much that you welcomed Jesus back into the throne room after he humbled himself and came to this earth to live and to die for us. We thank you that he now sits at your right hand, ruling and reigning. And we look forward to the day where we see that in person. God, I pray that we would trust you more because of what we've seen in Revelation today. Help us to trust you when things don't go the way that we want them to go this week. Help us to trust that you are good. When we we are uh, scheduling our week and what is Uh, what is going to be the thing that dictates how we spend our time this week. God, help us to remember that you are all about the exaltation of Jesus and our week this week ought to be about the same thing. God, help us to realize that when, when it feels like we're being attacked and things are not going our way and we are put in harm's way potentially, help us to remember that yes, persecution comes, but it comes in the wilderness and you own the wilderness. Help us to trust you and your protection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovereignhope.org. Again, that's www.sovereignhope.org.